All right, let's open your Bibles to James chapter 3. We're taking a, a detour off of our study in Philippians. And I'm actually using what we just looked at in Philippians as a launching pad to go a little bit deeper into this uh, concept or idea of conflict management. Last week, we looked at biblical ways to manage conflict, and we did this by looking at a significant conflict that was happening in the church of Philippi by these two significant ladies within the church. And we looked at some principles about how to manage conflict when it arises. This week, I'm using that as, like I said, a launching pad to look at how we will avoid negative conflict altogether. So if you have your Bibles, you you open them to James chapter 3. I'm going to start reading at verse 13, and we're going to go through chapter 4, verse 2. And the word of the Lord says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, because you do not ask. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me as we look at God's word today? <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we are not only permitted to look at your word, to read it, but we are commanded and exhorted to read, hear, and understand your word. And as we look today, Father, as what your text says about quarrels and strife and conflict, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would use us to sanctify your church, use us to use it to glorify Christ, to exalt him in our lives, in our relationships, and in this church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, conflict is nothing new. It's been around for thousands of years. As a matter of fact, all you have to do is open one page of your Bible, and immediately you start to see conflict in the book of Genesis. And conflict started in the garden, did it not? And it arose when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, and when they had to stand before God, what does Adam do? He blames the woman. And then the woman goes on to blame the serpent, and then you have your first conflict. And it doesn't stop there. It continues on throughout all the pages of Scripture. And conflict is inevitable. It is all throughout the pages of Scripture. We see the first generation of Adam and Eve when Cain and Abel. You see the conflict that they had when Cain killed Abel. And then you have strife and conflict between Abraham and Lot. We see it in Sarah and Hagar. Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau. You see conflict with Joseph and his brothers. I started to mark down these conflicts going through Genesis, and it got just too much. Every page I was flipping, every new generation was having more and more conflict. So I stopped. (laughs) 
Uh, but we also see conflict further on in the Old Testament with Moses. Constant conflict with him and the Israelites, was there not? There was conflict even with Moses' sister, Miriam and Aaron. Remember Numbers 12? Remember Miriam and Aaron spoke out in rebellion against Moses, indicting him, has the Lord only spoken to you? And there was conflict there. We saw conflict later on with David and Saul and Jonathan. And it doesn't stop in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, conflict abounded as well. We saw conflict constantly with Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. We even saw conflict among the apostles, did we not? Do you remember that they would argue at multiple times about who was the greatest? And then in Matthew 20 records the time, the embarrassing time of James and John when his mom comes and asks Jesus for, his, for her sons to sit at his right and the left. But do you remember what happened after that? It said that the other 12 became indignant. They were angry and they had conflict. And I would contend that they were angry because they wanted to sit at his right and left, not because James John's mom asked. I think they wanted that prestige position. Get conflict there. In the early church, constant conflict in the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas, who were so close, you remember in Acts 16, they had a conflict and ended up parting ways because Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, but Paul did not want to take him because he had deserted him a time before. So conflict is everywhere. It's everywhere through the pages of Scripture. And friends, isn't not everywhere in our lives? Every time you turn around, there's conflict somewhere, either within the home, outside the home, in the workplace, in church, wherever. Conflict is always around the corner. And friends, we must be active when it comes to managing conflicts. We cannot be passive because if we're passive, conflict will find us. You can do nothing and you'll find conflict because of our sin nature. It's inevitable. Ephesians 4.3 says to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The key word is to be diligent. It's active. We must be active in managing conflict. Especially when the chaos is happening in our world, tensions are high right now. When you have our government acting as, as they are, overreaching, creating their own tyrannical circle, we see conflicts are easier to come about. The tensions are high, uh, so to speak. We must be active in our culture more than ever to manage conflict, but not just in general manage conflict, but managing conflict within the body of believers. We must be diligent, as Ephesians says, to preserve the unity of peace. We must be diligent to be active when it comes to managing conflict within the local church, within the body of believers, but not just in the local church. The believers that you have in your own home. We need to be diligent to, to preserve unity within, the old, within our own home. Uh, within your workplaces, within other Christians, not just this local church, but within the universal church. We must be active. Once you get outside of sort of the circles of, uh, of similar doctrine that we all share, we have other believers that they have the true gospel, they have the essentials, and we disagree on what we think are very important things to disagree upon. And as a matter of fact, we should contend and debate and talk about these things. But we're also going to run into conflict simply because other people believe different things than we believe that are not essential to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So we must be diligent, both within the church, outside of the church, within all of our relationships, and especially those of us who are married, we must be diligent to grow in unity and to manage conflict within our marriage. Well, as I said last week, I looked at how to deal with conflict when it arises. This week, we're going to look at how to avoid conflict altogether. And I want to redefine what I mean by conflict. Uh, What I mean by conflict is simply how the Bible looks at it and what our own dictionary looks at it. Conflict is a sinful outburst of strife. It's not merely a disagreement. Okay, disagreements are good. They're okay. But when I say conflict, I mean something that's actually a sinful thing. I mean it's a negative thing. You know, I defined it last week, but it's, it's a contentious, warring spirits against two people that often have anger involved. And it's not. It's not a peaceful thing. That's what I mean by conflict. So will we have disagreements? Yes, that's okay. Will there even be times where there's tension between individuals? Yes. That in and of itself is not sinful, but how do we manage those things so that it doesn't turn into an outburst of strife and conflict? So I want to make sure that we have a working definition of what I mean by avoiding conflict. Because some might say, well, no, conflict's okay. But the way that I'm defining it, it is actually not okay. All right, The disagreement and the working through and even debates and all of that and working through problems and issues and disagreements, that is not what I mean by conflict. Does that make sense? I want to make sure we have that. Well, you might ask, why is it so important? What's wrong with you know, fighting and yelling at each other as long as we make up, right? Why is it so important to manage conflict and avoid it altogether or managing it in a God-honoring way? Well, there's four quick things. Our goal is to do what as believers? What is our goal in life? Why are we still here on earth? It's to be more like Christ, is it not? To be conformed to his image. That's number one. Our goal is to be more like Christ. And when we avoid the sinful way of conflict, as I'm defining it, we become more like Christ. When we manage disagreements and when we manage tension amongst believers in a God-honoring way so it doesn't break out into conflict, we are becoming and being like Christ. Second, for the glory of Christ and for the good of our neighbor. For the glory of Christ and the good of our neighbor. Number three, our witness to the world. What did Jesus say to his disciples? They will know you by your love for one another. Not your anger outbursts of conflict. Now, was there not disagreements within the apostles? We saw that in the early church. Was there not tension within the early church? Yes. But they managed that conflict for the most part, in a God-honoring way, and it increased their witness to the world. You know, we're called to love in both word and deed. There's two ditches to that, isn't there? We can be all loving in deeds and never proclaiming the truth, or we could love all in proclaiming the truth, but then we have a lifestyle behind us that doesn't match what we are proclaiming to the world. Does that make sense? They got, we've got to have both. So when we learn how to manage conflict, we are actually increasing and putting more weight behind our words when we then go tell the world the truth of God. Which goes to number four is the advancement of the gospel. When we learn how to manage conflict and avoid the sinful conflict, 
we, had, we are able to better advance the gospel and advance the kingdom of Christ in this world. Last week in the book of Philippians, we looked at these two ladies, Udaya and Sintichi. Paul urged them to be in harmony in the Lord. And we looked how to biblically manage conflict when it arises. Do you remember? It starts with you. That was one of the things we looked at. We must be active also in pursuing peace. We must be controlling our thoughts, controlling our anger, controlling our tongue. And we also looked how Paul urged them, urged a prominent member within the church or a leader to help these two ladies who were not in harmony, who were not in the same mind. Seeking outside godly counsel is also a means by which we can manage conflicts. But that was when conflict was happening. Today we're going to look at what scripture says is the source of conflicts and how we can avoid them altogether. And I want to go to the book of James because he, he poignantly tells us what the source of our conflicts are. What a more straightforward passage, but there's a little more to it in the preceding verses in chapter 4, verse 1, that I want to look at today and get a better understanding of how we can walk this walk as Christians and avoid this sinful way of conflict. With the book of James, just as a brief uh, background, is written by James, who was the half-brother of Jesus. He was one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. We see that in Galatians 1.19. And he presided at the council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. He was considered, in Galatians 2.9, he was considered one of the pillars of the church, along with Peter and John. Now, this epistle, James, was written somewhere between 44 and 62 A.D., uh, some scholars believe that James could have written, been written before 49 AD because there was no mention of the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. And so this would actually make James potentially the earliest New Testament writing. James did not write this to a particular church. If you look at chapter 1, it says it was, that he was writing this to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. More than likely, he was writing to a Jewish audience by making reference to the 12 tribes. Now, when he says dispersed abroad, most Bible scholars believe this was either as a result of the persecution of Herod Agrippa I, or more than likely could have been possible of the disbursement of Stephen's martyrdom in Acts chapter 7 that we read about. Like I said, not a specific audience, he's actually addressing uh, Jewish believers in general. Now, the book of James is best known as a book of tests. Tests on true faith versus not true faith. You have tests in chapter 1 of how believers work through trials and temptations versus how unbelievers. You have testings of showing partiality in chapter 2. And then you have the testing of true faith versus false faith faith at the end of chapter 2, where James says, what good is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but has no works, will that faith save him? And the answer is no. And so he distinguishes between somebody claiming to have faith but not having any works to back it up versus somebody who's walking by faith and has works to back up the faith that they profess to have. And then we come to chapter 3, we have the test of the tongue. 
And James gives the test of a tongue, as we know, as Jesus said, as the abundance of the mouth, the heart speaks. The testing of the tongue in chapter 3 is a test between how unbelievers behave with the tongue and how believers behave with the tongue. Which leads to verse 13, where he then transitioned into the test of earthly wisdom versus heavenly wisdom. And the test there, friends, is unbelievers operate with earthly wisdom. Believers operate in God's wisdom. And that's what brings us here. And the result is two things. The result is strife or peace. Heavenly wisdom, peace. Man's wisdom, strife. Here in our text, James addresses the very source of our conflicts. I want to look at overarching principles on how we can avoid conflict. So first, I'm going to address the negative things we must avoid that we have here in our text. And if we get to it, then we'll address the things that we can seek after to avoid conflict. And then if we don't get to that, I'll finish up that in two weeks. And then also, I'm working on, once we have that sort of foundation and those overarching principles, there are specific situations in the Bible that propose a risk for conflict happening. Things in the Bible that we know we have to do that increase the risk of conflict coming. I'm talking about things like addressing someone who's in sin. Could that not cause a conflict? Right? How do we do those specific things? So I have a list of about four things we'll look at next time on how do we function in these things and avoid it breaking out in a conflict. Now let's look at these things. There's three things that I want to address on what we must avoid in order to walk a life devoid of this sinful type of conflict. Number one, we must avoid using man's wisdom. We must avoid using man's wisdom or believing man's wisdom, however you want to word that. Now, the Jewish audience here in the book of James, they knew very much what James was talking about when he used the word wisdom. When he says, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. The Jewish audience knew exactly what James talked about when it came to wisdom because they had the wisdom literature. They had the the Proverbs. They had uh, even the Psalms and the book of Job and Ecclesiastes. They had uh, these Old Testament uh, wisdom literature. And now wisdom, I want to make sure that we understand what wisdom is uh, from a godly perspective. So to define wisdom, how the Jewish audience would have looked at this is wisdom is God's divine principles rightly applied. God's divine wisdom rightly applied. Wisdom is not simply knowing the right thing. Wisdom is simply not knowledge. In fact, if you do a study of the book of Proverbs, you'll find these three words used over and over, and that's wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Those three things have different variants, but they're used over and over to get seek wisdom, seek understanding, seek knowledge. So friends, wisdom is not just knowledge. It's not just knowing more stuff. Wisdom is rightly applying God's divine principles in your life. And where does the, where does the divine wisdom start in the book of Proverbs? It starts with fearing the Lord, does it not? It starts with fearing the Lord. That's the very first step. 
We have to fear the Lord in order to even start at God's wisdom. Well, what's man's wisdom? Well, James addresses what man's wisdom is here. Look at verse 15. He says, This wisdom is not which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. He says, This wisdom. This is man's wisdom. He describes it using three words. Earthly, natural, and demonic. Okay. What is this wisdom? I want to know what is this man's wisdom so that we can avoid it at all costs. Well, it's there in verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. Now, we're going to look at specifically these things in verse 14 here in just a minute, the bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Suffice to say to now, what is the central, what is the central point in verse 14? Who is of the utmost importance when you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition? The, the important person is me, is it not? That's the whole center around man's wisdom. When James says this wisdom, what wisdom? The wisdom that has bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, meaning everything about how you operate is about you. That's man's wisdom. That's wisdom not from above, he says, that is earthly, natural, and demonic. And look what he says. If you have man's wisdom, verse 14, if you have this wisdom, he says, do not be arrogant. And so lie against the truth. What is he saying there? Where the word arrogant means to glory against, to exalt over, to boast oneself above. When we trust in man's wisdom, when we trust in our own wisdom, our own way of thinking and not God's, we are seriously committing cosmic treason. We are literally rebelling against God and his word when we know what God's word says But man's wisdom's over here. We want to use that to apply it to our situation. We are committing cosmic treason. And why would we want to do that? Colossians 2.3 says, In Christ hold all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. When we adopt man's way of thinking, and if you think about any type of humanistic philosophy, any type of man-centered theology or man-centered philosophy, what is it all about? Is it not me with a circle around it and everything revolves around me, right? Everything needs to make me happy. So whatever I do in life, take any philosophy, any psychology approach that is wrapped in humanistic philosophy, It's all about changing the external things to make me happy. Even in much of churches today, most of the church thinking and the church uh, theology has adopted a lot of man's wisdom so that even within the church and within our Christian walk, everything is still about me. It's me, me, me. And if anything outside my circle is causing me to be unhappy, then they need to change. Or I need to remove myself from them because they're not making me happy. I don't have a fulfilled life. And what is the outcome of man's wisdom? 
Verse 16, look, this is what man's wisdom brings you. If you look at 14 and 16, they go together. So it's 14. If you have this man's wisdom, which is full of bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your heart, the, the man's wisdom of me, me, me. Verse 16 says, where this is, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Every evil thing and disorder. That's the outcome of man's wisdom, my friends. You try to take man's wisdom and apply it to the problems in your life, you're going to have disorder in every evil thing. There will be no peace. That word disorder means commotion, tumults, as in a war. There's absolutely no peace. Now look at what James says as this wisdom is earthly. He says in verse 15, it's earthly. It's natural and it's demonic. Man's wisdom is earthly. That literally just means it's on the earth. It's physical. It's in the physical realm. It's from the earth. It's in the earth. Then he says it's natural. This word has the prefix of psyche, which is where we get the word, our, our, our psyche, our life, our breath. It's where we get psychology from, the study of life, the study of the soul, rather. And so it's not only earthly, it's also, it's fleshly is another way to say it. it it's all about us and it's all about me. But not only that, he goes a level further. He says it's earthly. Man's wisdom is natural. Man's wisdom is demonic. And that word literally means from the demons. Man's wisdom, friends, plainly put, is from the pit of hell. Man's wisdom is from the pit of hell. And we need, we need to be warned to stay far from it. James describes man's wisdom, as I said in the preceding verse, how it's all about me. Even human philosophy about doing good to others, what's the end result? It, it makes me happy, doesn't it? It fulfills my life. It's all about me. Friends, are you operating your life based on man's wisdom or God's wisdom? Think about certain situations in your life. Do you trust your own way of doing that thing, whatever it is, having a challenge in the workplace? Are you operating your own way of doing things? If you're having a challenge with family, with children, with a spouse, are you operating in your own way? You say, yes, I know God's word says that, but this is different and somehow this is different in some way. So I'm going to use my own way of thinking or I'm going to use man's philosophy, man's way of doing things, man's word and not God's word. Brothers and sisters, do you truly think you know better than God? Now I understand things happen. We get in our emotional state and we think that we know the right answer because our situation might be different. I understand the challenge of that. And that's where we need to submit more to God and we need to repent of our low view of God because that's what it comes down to. When we have a high view of God, well, our view of ourselves becomes more accurate when we have a lower view of ourselves. Therefore, our trust and dependency is more upon God. But friends, when we operate in a low view of God, a low view of his holiness and a low view of his word, then the view of ourselves gets puffed up and we think ourselves to be better than we are really. We are not. Do you not trust the one who holds all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? I go back to Colossians 2, 3 often, friends. 
in whom Christ holds all the treasures. The words all, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures. Now here in the text when he says in verse 14, do not be arrogant and lie against the truth. What does that mean? When we as believers know the word of God, know man's, know God's wisdom, and still choose to operate in man's wisdom, we are literally lying against the truth. As I said before, we're, we are committing cosmic treason. So that's the first thing we must, in order to avoid the sinfulness of, of conflict, strife, we must avoid adopting man's wisdom. Number two, we must avoid bitter jealousy. And this is part of man's wisdom. Verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, do not be arrogant and lie against the truth. Now this word bitter jealousy, there's two words. Bitter is an adjective. It literally means bitter, harsh. Jealousy is a word that can be used positive or negatively in the Bible. It can be used positively, for instance, when Jesus flipped the tables and the disciples remember that it was written, zeal shall consume me, or zeal for my house shall consume me. Well, that word zeal is the same word used here for jealousy. So that's used in a positive sense in that way. But it's also used as a negative sense here as meaning more of envious or having contentious rivalry. It can mean envy, desiring what you don't have. Desiring and having a a zeal for things to go my way. That's what he's saying here when there's bitter jealousy. There's a harshness that things must go my way. There's a harshness with, with, you know, I have to have it my way or the highway. There's a harshness for this desire and this zeal to have what you want. I see a sense of control within this wording here that Paul uses, this bitter jealousy. There's a sense of control that, that I'm in control of my life and nobody can, everybody must conform to me. And friends, that's, that's part of man's wisdom and that's what happens and that's what creates strife and conflict is having bitter jealousy. This jealousy is actually used as a, in Galatians 5, as one of the deeds of the flesh. Galatians 5, where he lists, in verse 20, he lists idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. Same word. In fact, if you do a word study, each time this word jealousy is used in a negative sense, it's directly linked to strife. It's directly linked to strife. I just read you one, Galatians 20, where you have strife, jealousy. But also you have Romans 13, 13, where he says, Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. There you have them. 1 Corinthians 3, 3. You are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? 2 Corinthians 12, 20. For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, Paul says, I may find you 
to be not what I wish and may be found by you, to be not what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. So you see, jealousy is directly linked with strife. The two other times it's used in a negative sense is in a narrative in Acts 5 and then in verse 13 where the crowds were filled with jealousy and started contradicting Paul and were blaspheming. So their jealousy created this strife and discord and conflict. So we must, we must get rid of jealousy. We must not only seek to get rid of it, friends, if that describes any facet of your life, we must repent of it. Because it is displeasing to God. This form of seeking my own way, seeking to have it your way, seeking to have what you want. And that starts in the heart. Look what he says in verse 14. It says, in your heart. It's only going to come out when you're facing conflict. So this is a work that you have to do in the heart. The Holy Spirit has to do it in your heart. And it first starts with repentance. So if you have selfish ambition in your heart, excuse me, bitter jealousy, that too, that's bad. If you have bitter jealousy in your heart, friends, I encourage you and exhort you to repent of that. Turn from that way. Seek to have a higher view of God and a lower view of self. You know, John Calvin said you can truly not know God until you know yourself. And you can't know yourself until you know God, is what he says, the very next sentence. So to truly know ourselves, we have to seek God. We have to learn the attributes of God. And the more we learn about a holy, righteous, just, powerful, almighty God who's bestowed his mercy upon sinners like us, the better view we have of ourselves. And as we repent of this jealousy, this zeal for our own way, this bitterness that we have, God will change our hearts. It is a, an attribute or an adjective that's constantly described by unbelievers. And for me, I don't want to have that as a believer. We can struggle with it, but if it's an ongoing thing in our life, we must repent of it. Third, we must get rid of selfish ambition. In order to avoid conflict, we must rid ourselves of having selfish ambition. Now, this is similar, but the word is actually used historically in a political aspect for uh, electioneering or intriguing for office. It was used during that time period for those who would pursue political office by unfair means. Paul uses it here, but he also uses it in Philippians 2, if you remember in our study, verse 3, where it says, Do nothing from selfishness or selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. So this electioneering, this self-promoting, selfish ambition is putting yourself first in its simplest terms, but it's also there's a deeper heart issue where you want to manipulate, whether consciously or unconsciously, you want to manipulate things or change things around you, change people around you so that you can put yourself first. Just as a political pundit is trying to run for office and they're doing anything they can, beating around the bush, cutting edges, not, it could be even not even 
necessarily outright sinful things like lying, like many politicians do. But the, the word that I like to describe is electioneering, okay? Self-aggrandizing, right? You're, you're only looking out for yourself when yourself is number one. Friends, selfish ambition has absolutely no place in the church. Selfish ambition has no place in your marriage. Selfish ambition has no place in your workplace. Selfish ambition has no place in your friendships, in any of your relationships. This word selfish ambition is an absolute sin, and it also must be repented of. It must be repented of. Now, if we continue in our study here in James, in verse four, chapter 4, verse 1, he gives us the source of our conflicts. He says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not your pleasures that wage war in your members? So when he says pleasures, this is a similar idea as having selfish ambition. Your, your pleasures that are waging war in your members are causing this conflict and quarrels among you. Now, the word pleasures in the Greek is hedonai, which is where we get our word for hedonism in the English, which literally just means self-pleasure. It's everything. Again, it's all about me. And in the text, it says that your pleasures are waging war in your members. Now, when he says members, he's literally meaning members of your body, in your mind, in your heart, in your hands, in your soul. The pleasures that you're seeking for are raging war throughout your heart and your soul that you're going to do everything to protect yourself. You're going to do everything to promote yourself. You're going to do everything to satisfy yourself, to make yourself happy. Then in verse 2, he says, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You might think, whoa, where did he just jump? Now he's talking about murder. I, I don't commit murder. You know, it's interesting on how Bible scholars look at this text because he is writing generally to believers, although he's giving them tests of their salvation. But why is he throwing in murder right there? Well, John Calvin actually thinks that that might have been a scribal error. There is one Greek letter that could be changed to envious. Well, I, I don't see that. I think there are enough manuscripts that has the word murder. What I think this is, is lust in its ultimate form. Ends at what? It ends at murder, right? Uh, we see that as Jesus equates anger to murder because the ultimate expression of anger and lust is murder. And that's where the root of it comes from. The first murder, Cain killing Abel, came from this lust because Cain was not happy. He was jealous and he had lust, not in a sexual way, but he had lust and, and envy and anger towards God. And to his brother, because God regarded his brother's sacrifice and not his. So I just think that James is jumping to the ultimate expression of lust, which is murder. But then he says, you are envious and you cannot obtain. So you do what? You fight and you quarrel. You are envious, he says. This word envy is a verb form of jealousy that's used in verse 14 of the previous chapter. Let me look at that again, because this is key. In verse 2, he says, you are envious. That's the verb form of the word jealousy in the preceding chapter in verse 14 and 16. You understand where I'm going with that? He's saying you are acting in this jealous, zealous, pleasurous, self-pleasure way. 
And what happens? You're so zealous, you can't get what you want. So you fight. So you quarrel. Is that not the source of your conflicts? Think about the conflicts that you've had in the past. Is that not the source? You know, I tell my children all the time, and it's like a mirror back to me. It takes two to have an argument, does it not? It takes two to have a, have a conflict, does it not? You cannot choose to join in the argument. You know, it, it, it uh, doesn't come to mind now. My wife probably knows it, but there's a proverb that says any fool will quarrel. It doesn't take much for a fool to start arguing. All it takes is a little bit. Oh, they jump to an argument, and then it turns to conflict and strife, and the next thing you know, you're not talking to one another. For the believer, though, friends, what is the root of self-pleasure? What is the root of this envious spirit, of this selfish ambition, this self-love? What is the root of this self-aggrandizement? Well, I said it earlier, but I'm going to say it again. I contend that it's having a low view of God. Having a low view of God, which results in a high view of ourself. That's what I believe is the root of all of these things here. The self-ambition, selfish ambition, self-pleasure, the hedonism. And friends, let me tell you that our culture is highly affecting us in this. More ways than we even think. Our culture is negatively affecting us in this manner. Our culture is all about self-love. And it's affected most churches nowadays. It's all about loving myself. I don't know about you, but when people say you can't love others until you love yourself, I really kind of have a gag reflex when I hear that. Uh, Because I understand for some people, I understand sort of the heart behind that for for believers. But in the modern culture, all that really means is, you know what? I got to put myself first. I got to love myself. I got to exalt myself and be so good. And then I can love these peasants below me. That's what it truly means. It's really just exalting ourselves. Galatians 6.3 says, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. It must not be this way with believers, friends. It must not be this way amongst the called of God. We must have a right view of ourselves. We must have a high view of God. So if you struggle with these things that you've heard today, if you struggle with selfish ambition, if you struggle with self-love, even looking out for me and my interests, I first pray that the Holy Spirit would convict you when, when you start to get in that, uh, that mindset. And I would encourage you to seek the Scriptures, first in repentance, but also seek the Scriptures to learn about God. Because, friends, if you don't have a right view of God, you will fall into this trap. The culture will suck you up and spit you out, and you will come out a self-loving hedonist. So it must not be this way with believers. John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So those are the three negatives, the three things that we must avoid in order to avoid this sinful thing of strife, the sinful thing of conflict. 
So I ask you, what areas of your life are you falling prey today when it comes to conflicts? Are you operating on man's wisdom? Do you find yourself with bitterness? Do you find yourself easily provoked? Do you find yourself having jealousy, selfish ambition? Which area of your life? Because I would contend for some of us, it's one or more. And focus on that area of your life this week and seek God's word to learn more about him and how we ought to respond when it comes to avoiding conflict. You know, I hope like with me that God will give you opportunities this week to manage conflict or to avoid it by walking in a Christ-like way. I know I texted some of you this past week because this past Monday morning, God gave me an opportunity bright and early to practice what I just preached the night before. And so it's easy to hear it, it's easy to preach it, but it's hard to live it. Amen? Uh, Well, I think we're going to end there because we also have three things that we want to seek. We're going to save that till next time. The three things that that we must seek in order to avoid conflict. And we're going to look at that uh, next time that we come together. And then we're also going to look at situations, as I mentioned, that can lead to conflict if they're not managed in a biblical way. So again, friends, the reason that we want to avoid this sinfulness of strife and conflict, ultimately, ultimately, it's for the glory of Christ. The reason you and I are still on this earth is to be conformed to his image And when we do that, when we avoid conflict and have love and walk in harmony with our brothers and sisters, friends, we are glorifying our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for your word today. Lord, we thank you that you gave us this book, this chapter, these verses that was very clear on what causes conflicts, quarrels, and fights among us. And Lord, uh, although we, although it can hurt to hear, God, that it's, it's because of us. It's because of our own selfish desires in our hearts. It's from our own selfish ambitions. And Lord, I ask first that you forgive me, Lord, for my selfishness. Lord, even, even this week, even today, Lord, forgive me of my selfish ambition Lord for my self-seeking pleasure Lord I pray that you would help us God help us to recognize Lord these sinful tendencies that can be so deceiving because of our culture and the effect that it's had on us Lord I pray that you would help us to be sensitive to know when we are operating in man's wisdom and not, our, and not your wisdom. Lord, so that we may glorify Christ in our relationships, our relationships with our spouse, our friends, our sons, our daughters, our mothers, our fathers, our family, co-workers, that we may glorify Christ, that the world would see our love for one another, Lord, that we would love in both word by proclaiming the truth, but also indeed that our light would shine so before men that they would see our good deeds 
and that our good deeds would back up the words that we profess, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.